This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. As the COVID pandemic moves through its second year, many schools remain closed with students struggling to learn online over the internet. Other schools are open only on a part-time basis. However, an increasing number of schools are beginning to let students enter the classroom. And many hope that most schools will be fully open this coming fall. But will they be taught in an effective manner? Will students be able to see and hear their teachers? Or must teachers' voices be muffled and teacher expressions totally be hidden behind a mask for the purposes of safety? Will children be able to see their peers or must they remain hidden behind a piece of cloth? Will they have to stand at a considerable distance from one another? No, 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 says Jay Bhattacharya, a professor at the Stanford Medical School in an op-ed piece that appeared in the Wall Street Journal just a few days back. To discuss the evidence for his opinions on this matter and his recommendations as to what we need to do going forward, I'm pleased to have Jay Bhattacharya with me on the Education Exchange. Jay, you were with me a year ago when the pandemic was just breaking last spring and there was a lot that we weren't absolutely sure about back then. We know a lot more now. Thank you for joining me again today. No, thank you for having me, Paul. So a few weeks ago, I talked on the Education Exchange with Becky Pringle, the president of the National Education Association, and she said that schools should not be opened until ventilation was improved. In addition to masks and social distancing, teachers and students needed to be vaccinated, other protections needed to be put into place. So should the schools remain closed? Is there any scientific basis for this position? No, there's no scientific basis for that position. Um, just to give you a sense of this, uh, Sweden has had its schools open effectively throughout the pandemic. And uh, there was a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine around this, that no, no children died uh, during the first wave of the pandemic, despite having schools entirely open with no masks or social distancing. And the teachers themselves in those schools had mortality COVID mortality risks at lower rates than the population at large uh, of the other, the average of other, other, other professions. So um, schools can be open, uh, for, and uh, we can go into why. There's some, some interesting scientific data on the, the relative safety of teachers in schools and, the, and, the, and of course the risk to children themselves from COVID. But I think the, the overwhelming thing that I think something like that position uh, is, ignores is the is the incredible harm to children from not having school from having zoom school or, or whatnot and it's not just harm that's equally distributed across the population it's it's incredibly unequal um, richer people have been able to send their children to private schools for instance that are open they've managed to have teachers uh, you know tutors the hired to bring in to, for for the for uh, to home to, to augment whatever the list missing in their schools and they've had these learning pods for instance but poor people around the country cannot afford that um, so I think if you if you take the balance of evidence uh, both on the covid side and on the harms to education side I think there's the answer to your question is overwhelming no we should open schools immediately everywhere well, should every school open everywhere? I think I just heard you say, but aren't there some places where the risks of COVID spread are so severe that teachers should continue to 
insist that the schools remain closed? Again, I think the answer is no to that. Uh, so first, there's a couple of things. One is that uh, the uh, schools are not the driver of this epidemic. Uh, there was evidence from even early on in the epidemic that for, for reasons we don't still fully understand, children are much less likely to pass the disease on uh, should they be infected to, to, uh, than, than, um, than, than are adults. Uh, in nearly every study that I've seen on this topic that has tried to distinguish between the direction of the spread of the disease, children just turn out to be very inefficient spreaders. We have in the back of our heads this idea that somehow uh, children are, 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 you know, sort of the, the, the vector of the spread of all respiratory disease. And it's true for some, like for the flu, for instance, they are more likely to spread. They're quite efficient spreaders of the flu, but they are not efficient spreaders of COVID. And there's a lot of very solid scientific data published in, in peer-reviewed literature that, that, that documents it. So children don't drive the epidemic. Now, our are they, are they at, uh, is it, does it make sense to close the schools to slow the spread of the epidemic in the places where there's lots of spread? Again, the answer seems to be no, they're not driving the spread of the disease. Uh, as I said, in Sweden, they've been open basically continuously throughout the epidemic, through ups and downs in, in it. And, and they're not thought to be the spread of the, the center of the spread of the disease. It's other places like hospitals and, 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 um, and other essential workplaces where lots of adults are that potentially could be sources of some spread, but main, the main source of spread is actually in households, right? So, so, so there's a few people that get sick, they, they spread it in the households. That's what the contact tracing studies say. Schools are not the central place. So it doesn't help to contain the epidemic. The effect is just to harm our students. So I just talked uh, recently with the uh, superintendent of the Catholic schools in the Boston area. And I asked him, how did you dare to open up the schools last fall when so many people were saying it was too risky? Wasn't, wasn't this uh, you know, something that you were taking upon yourself that you just shouldn't have done? And, and he said, well, no, because I knew that those kids, if they weren't in school, would be in other settings where they would be if they were to be spreading COVID, they would be more effective spreaders, making almost the same point you are making here, that in the home, if children were spreaders, they would be more efficient spreaders, not in school than in school. Yeah, I don't know how we came up with this idea that schools were the central place. We kind of knew that even from the beginning. Uh, I actually, in the, um, in the summer of last year, I served as an expert in a case uh, it, where the Florida uh, Department of Education decided to open its schools in the fall. In fact, the schools in Florida have been open all through uh, since the fall. Uh, and uh, I mean, some places have masks and things, so not like Sweden exactly. But in any case, um, the department the, the, the department was sued by the Florida the teachers unions. And uh, for that case, I looked at all of uh, all the scientific evidence through that time, through the summer of last year. It was pretty clear from the scientific evidence of the summer of last year that schools were safe, uh, that the children were not, were not, not really at high risk of, of spreading, or, you know, they, they can still spread the disease, but it's very inefficient spreaders of the disease. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, schools around the world opened on that basis. It's mainly the U.S., and in many, I mean, actually, my, my, my native state of California, that, that's, that's the outlier. I mean, it's, it's, uh, we've, we've shut our schools down this entire year, not going on 13 months. Um, and I think, unfortunately, with very little to show for the, the benefit regarding the disease spread, 
and enormous harms that they're going to be counting for years to come. Well, I brought these same arguments up to uh, the president of the National Education Association, and she replied, well, but there is an instance, I think it was in North Carolina, maybe South Carolina, where there was a concentration uh, of infections that had been found by CDC. And she said that showed just how important it was to keep the schools closed. Do you know that incident? I haven't heard of the South Carolina. There was usually people cite a Georgia summer in Georgia camp. yeah yeah. Um, yeah I mean they're they're the Georgia the Georgia summer camp. again the, let me give you an example like an, an illustrative example from of this kind of literature so um, there was a South Korean study published last summer uh, that that said it was based on contact tracing and and said that schools were a major source of the spread of the disease they, there was a contact tracing study that that that, that uh, and, and now the problem with contact tracing studies is that uh, let's suppose I get the disease and then I, uh, the, the contact tracer contacts me and says, who, who have you been in, in touch with? And then you go back and see all the people I've been in touch with. But you can't tell just from that alone who spread the disease to whom, right? I, I could have spread the disease to people I contacted with or vice versa. The South Korean study was revised. They initially concluded the schools were the place the schools were spreading, but then it was revised to exclude cases where they couldn't tell the direction of the disease spread. And the conclusion was, just like in line with the vast majority of the literature, that uh, that school the children are very inefficient spreaders. That schools actually weren't the main main source of the spread. Um, uh, the the uh, probably the very best evidence comes from Iceland, where the contact tracing studies that they did there early in the epidemic they documented they also supplemented with genetic analysis of the virus. The virus, as we now know, mutates you know, basically continuously, and each mutation in a sense is like a fingerprint for the virus, right? So if you if you have a, a, a particular mutation for the virus and then I have that same mutation for that virus, for the virus, um, it's possible you spread the disease to me, right? Uh, whereas if I don't have the mutation that you had from that from the virus, then it's not it's unlikely you spread it to me. Uh, based on that, in Iceland, they found no evidence that children spread the disease very efficiently. Um, this is documented in study after study after study. And I don't understand why the focus on if, uh, uh, on studies that almost inevitably when they're revised end up with the conclusion, the same the same direction. It's like, it's, 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 um, it's, you have to look, go based on the weight of the evidence and the, the vast weight of the evidence points in the direction of what I just said, that schools, kids are not super spreaders. Well, let's, let's talk about schools that do open and children do go to school, but they're being asked to wear masks. You said in the Wall Street Journal, that children shouldn't be masked at all. So why is it that you say that students shouldn't be masked? Okay, so to me, it's it's a it's a it's a cost benefit analysis, right? So first of all, what are the benefits? Uh, my my position about my, based on my reading the scientific evidence, the children are very very inefficient spreaders of the disease. So that's a small probability to begin with. Multiply by that the 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 benefits of masking to slow the spread of the disease. Uh, again, that's, I mean, based on based on a, a ton of evidence, it's clear that e even places that have very, very high levels of masking, the disease still spreads. So you're going to multiply by another probability. And then finally, the question is, what are, are do children wear the mask very efficiently? And anyone that has any experience with kids, especially young kids, understands the, the kids are not good at wearing masks. Frankly, adults aren't good at wearing masks. You have to almost be a trained surgeon to wear a mask effectively. Um, but kids, uh, I mean, just not. So you've got another small probability. If 
you multiply those probabilities together, the benefits of mask wearing are low in terms of disease spread for children. Against that, you should consider the, uh, the harms of mask wearing. And here, it's, it's really instructive to look at the World Health Organization's report uh, on its recommendation for mask wearing for children. And it's really clear, there's enormous evidence of developmental harms for children from mask wearing. So uh, this is most clear in, in very young children, ages two to five. Uh, they, they, the World Health Organization says there's like developmental mile, milestones that don't get hit as a consequence of mask wearing, of extended long-term mask wearing. Um, and for children that are, uh, that are older, six to 11, they also document harms, right? They talk about, uh, talk about the uh, you know, a language, language development uh, and, and acquisition, uh, emotional learning of emotional responses, socialization skills, a whole range of things that you, know, you, you, can, you can imagine require being able to see people's expressions um, that you learn as, as, as a child. Um, now, on the basis of this, the World Health Organization recommends against mask wearing for ch children five and under. Um, the, the CDC says you should mask even between two and five. So between the CDC and the World Health Organization, there's disagreement about the, 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 the right age of masking. I look at the same evidence and I say, look, there's an enormous amount of evidence that there's harm to children from masking. Um, and the evidence that it actually benefits in terms of slowing the disease spread is, 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 is near zero. So why would I recommend masking even for kids six to 11? It doesn't make sense to me. Um, so that's, that's the base of the recommendation and also the base that I, uh, of, that I made to the government DeSantis when he asked me in, in a round table, a uh, scientific round table about whether children should be masked. Uh, I think the cost benefit is really clear that no. Um, and as far as, as far as like, uh, I mean, so I just, I think that that is the, that's, I, th I think we have to look, look at both the cost and the benefits and it, the, the case doesn't make sense to me. Well, are there any real world situations where mask wearing has been not required and we can look at whether or not you've gotten a lot of COVID spread under those circumstances? Yeah, so for instance, Sweden, okay, I referenced at the beginning, uh, has not required masks in its schools. And uh, as I said, the, the children, like no, no children died uh, during, the, during uh, much of the year last year at all, despite attending schools with no masking or distancing. Um, and the, uh, the adults in the schools, the teachers also uh, had COVID rates uh, and risk at lower than the, the average of other professions. Um, it's as safe, in fact, probably safer for teachers to be in school than it is to be in other professions. And now that most teachers are vaccinated, they are at essentially no risk of severe outcomes from COVID. Um, I don't understand why, at this point, why every school in the country isn't open. Yeah, well, the teacher organizations are certainly against it. And one of the arguments they bring up is the ventilation within the schools. So how, how important is good quality ventilation for uh, uh, minimizing risks? I guess the question is what risk, right? So ve good ventilation can reduce the probability that if somebody is symptomatic that's in the, in the room, spreads disease to other people, that's true. But imagine you have a policy that says, if, you, if your child is sick, please keep your child home. And that's rigorously enforced. Uh, imagine that you have a situation where most of the teachers or all the teachers are vaccinated against COVID. Well, then the risk of severe death or hospitalization from that situation, even when there's no ventilation, no good ventilation is very, very low. 
because the teachers are protected by the vaccines. Um, the disease might still spread, and, and most of the spread is symptomatic. Uh, you know, the vast majority of spread is actually, frankly, symptomatic, not asymptomatic. And so, the, and the kids are staying home if they're symptomatic. Um, you're going to get very little disease spread. Uh, it's, I, I think the question again is not trying to get to zero risk, which I think is the premise behind what uh, the 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 the, um, the union position here is. The question is balancing the benefits to children from their birthright, which is to give them a good education versus the, 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 the marginal harm of disease spread risk, which is, as I said, in schools, in, enormous, incredibly low for, re, which we, you know, at the, and we know based on a, a vast body of scientific evidence. Yeah, it's very curious that the discussion is so seldom cast in these terms. We know that if you lose a year's worth of learning Later on in life, that's going to cost you, you know, five to ten percent of your annual income on average, and have all kinds of other negative consequences for other dimensions of your life. So these facts never get. We've now lost a year's worth of a generation of students have lost, unless you can, unless you believe that learning online is as anywhere near as efficient as learning in the classroom. We've had a tremendous loss of wealth. Uh, for a whole generation, um, why is that never considered in making dis policy decisions? It's immoral. It's immoral. We absolutely, frankly, every kid in this generation should has every has every right to what, what was the saying in the '60s? Don't trust on anyone over 30. I mean, they have every right to to adopt that adopt that position with with much more justice than people in the '60s did or kids in the '60s did. Um, we have stolen a year of their of their their birthright from them. I think, um, and I don't understand why that is not front and center in our thinking. And it's not just that they have lower income. Uh, so I'm a health economist. There's an enormous literature that kids. That, that, that skipping years of school education is, is, is enormously beneficial to future health as well, right? So um, I think there was a study published in JAMA that, uh, that just from the missed schooling in, the, in September, in, 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 the, in the spring of last year, a couple of months of missed schooling, kids will have lost millions of life years in expectation because kids that are less well-educated lead, lead poorer, unhealthier and shorter lives. We're, we're trading basically no COVID benefit in exchange for enormous harm that, that, that our kids will pay for for their entire lives. Well, can you extend this from the schools to society as a whole, the lockdown, the disruption of business activity, the loss of income for uh, important segments of our society? Is that is, is can you generalize beyond the school to this larger context and say we are pursuing a whole set of policies that are are harmful for 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 everyone yeah i mean i think unfortunately that's the case i think um i, I would just give you an example um we have thought about lockdowns as a way to, to protect vulnerable older people uh, you know who've died at i mean 80 percent of the deaths in covid uh, are people over 65 in the United States. So um, we, the lockdowns have not actually protected them. We still have, have had enormous deaths um, and concentrated in the older population. Um, 
the 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 uh, if you compare, for instance, Florida, which has been open basically since May uh, 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 and 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 completely open more or less since September. Disney World has been open since since I think like July. Yes, um, my granddaughters went there and had a great time of, at, at, because nobody's there. It's the best time to go. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been that would have been a dream. You get to go on Space Mountain over and over again. I guess though, um, uh, but uh, uh, but and they've had. Under over 65 mortality from COVID is lower in Florida than it is in California, where my kids still aren't in school. Um, and uh, we've been locked down more or less continuously in, in, one, in sort of to, to what to lesser or greater extent basically since since uh, March of last year. Um, so why do you think that is? That's a really interesting point. You know that California and Florida, their climate isn't that much different. Uh, what what could account for why you know California hasn't been able to reduce the infection rate uh, given their policies as compared to Florida? I mean, the key thing is not the infection rate to me. Actually, it's it's mortality, and you get mortality when older people expose the virus. How do you protect old people from the virus? You, I mean, I think the thinking of much of public health has been that we. If we lock down, we can just sort of by osmosis protect older people from the virus. But in fact, that's not what happens. Lockdown, in fact, is not, uh, I mean, like, in, like the simplest intuitive thing is like you think about it, it's just keeping people separate from each other. But in fact, that's not possible. People have to interact with each other eventually. A 13 month of keeping people apart from each other is not actually a feasible outcome. Instead, what happens is, you get this very unequal outcome. Like in, in, in LA County, for instance, the mortality rate from COVID in um, richer parts of, the, of LA County uh, are much, much lower, three times lower than they are in the poorer parts of LA County. Uh, the race differences are shocking, three times the rate of mortality among Hispanics than whites in LA County. In, in Florida, where there hasn't been a lockdown, you actually get lower mortality rates in the over 65, and you get much more equal outcomes. There aren't race differences in the same way as there are the lockdowns. What they are essentially is is a is focus protection of the rich. It's a it's a trickle down epidemiology is what is is, is the way you should think about them. Um, it's protection for a certain class of people and not protection for everybody. And in particular, it's not protection for the set of people who are most vulnerable to disease, which are the older people. Well, you know, maybe that's why we have it. That's why we have the policies we have is because they're they're quite beneficial to a certain segment of our society that's very powerful, the, the well-educated, the people who can communicate uh, as we are right now over a video screen and uh, the people who um, uh, have uh, money in the stock market, which keep, keeps going up and up and up. So really, there's if you're well off, you do not have compelling reasons except maybe you'd like to go out for dinner and poor people are suffering very badly. Is that? A, I think that's completely fair. Completely can, we, fair. can we say that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, I think it is entire. I mean, that thought has crossed my head many times. Like what is the political economy of this? And what you described Paul is exactly how I'm thinking about it. I mean, I think if, if, um, if you had to pick a more unequal, unfair policy, you could not have done better than lockdown. Well, this is uh, a disturbing moment. Uh, 
I'm hopeful that we are beginning to turn the corner. The fact that your voice was heard in the Wall Street Journal is one that I see as one of the encouraging signs. Thank you, Jay, very much for joining me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Paul, for having us. Delight to talk with you. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education X website.